I gotta admit, I hadn't heard about the old Katsura tree at Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, D.C. I knew that Dumbarton Oaks was an estate and museum with one of the great gardens of America designed by Beatrix Ferrand, although I'd never been there. The Katsura came to my attention when landscape architect Ron Henderson invited me to tag along with him early this spring to see a project he coordinated with the top-notch horticultural staff there. Along with him and his assistant Hans Friedel, Ron recruited a special guest from Japan named Karato Fujimoto, a master gardener from Kenroku-en, one of the three great Japanese landscape gardens. Mr. Fujimoto or Karato, as I came to know him informally, was leading a team effort to install a series of crutches and braces under the Big Katsura, an indigenous Japanese propping technique to promote the long-term health of old trees and to support long, aging branches. This was not an opportunity to be missed. Tree lovers, I'd like to bring you along to Dumbarton Oaks with me, where you can join me as a fly on the garden wall, so to speak. As we go, you'll learn more about this project and meet several interesting people like Jonathan Cavalier, the Director of Gardens and Grounds, as well as Abner Alderondo, a humanities fellow who dug through mounds of documents and photos to research the origins of the Katsura. Best of all, you'll get to know this lovable, unique tree that holds its own as an unplanned cast member of Farron's magnificent garden. It has a bit of mystery about it that relates to the burgeoning 19th century fascination with Japanese trees and plants. I know you'll need to go see this tree when we're done. I'm Doug Still, and this is This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree Shadow and I left my hotel early on a Monday morning to meet up with Ron, Hans, and Corrado at Dumbarton Oaks, which is in the Georgetown section of Washington. We were to meet at the guest house where they were being housed, along the northwest edge of the garden. It was not an easy spot to get to by public transportation, so I decided to walk because it was such a beautiful day. Bad idea. Like a rookie, I thought I could cut through the U.S. Naval Observatory area to the north of the garden, but hit a dead end and had to walk all the way around. I was late. Ron texted to just walk in and around the building to the maintenance garage, where they were already hard at work with Jonathan Cavalier and the entire garden crew. I said my hellos and then started asking questions. Ron, what are we doing here? Karato Fujimoto and Mark Vetter are putting the cross piece on one of the posts. This is the first first one that we're And They've just countersunk the cross piece for a lag bolt to connect the cross piece to the pole. Installing two of those, and we'll also be installing two kasugai or kind of C-shaped nails uh, to the outside that will also help 
secure the cross piece to the post. They were constructing 11 poles with T-shaped struts at the top, all exactly measured according to their planned placement along selected branches of the Katsura tree. They were working off a diagram that Ron had created on-site with Karatu Fujimoto, hand-drawn in ink within folding sketchbooks called Orihon. So we measured the tree um, on Monday, a week ago. Um, Fujimoto identified the locations for the uh, supports, which are known as Hozue, and we measured the dimensions from the underside of the branch to the ground so that we'd know the length for all of the poles. And then we've acquired the, the orchard poles that we'll be using for the supports this week. And now we're going to be fabricating the poles uh, this morning, maybe into this afternoon. And then we'll be heading out to the tree to begin to install them this afternoon. Probably two days of work. Apparently, there was a bit of a scramble to find the right type of supports locally and get them to the shop in time to conduct the project. But Jonathan and the crew pulled it off. So you got these all these poles a week ago? <laughs> we did. We got, we, uh, got them on Wednesday last week. And they were um, barked? You had to debark them? No, these were actually pressure-treated arbor poles that oh, we, right. we sent a staff person out to Madison, Virginia to pick them up. It was like a full-day road trip, and she came back with them in the afternoon, and then we had to sand them down to expose the grain and, and remove kind of the... Make them look nicer. Yeah, yeah. Or more interesting. Yes, exactly. So these are telephone poles? These are basically, I, well, arbor poles, I guess they're used in, in arbor culture. These are white pine that are uh, have been pressure treated. So, And you worked on this all Friday. Yeah, Thursday and Friday. The, uh, the garden, all, all hands on deck, sanding. Yes. <laughs> what was your role? Uh, I was one of the sanders. Uh, yeah, you're yeah a sander. I'm, a, I'm a good cheerleader. I... Uh, <laughs> This wasn't my first experience installing Hosoei, as they are known in Japanese. Karado and Ron were retained by the Parks Department of the City of Providence a year ago to work with the Betsy Williams Sycamore, the 240-year-old tree you may remember from Episode 1. It has a 57-foot-long branch that stretches out at eye level, a very special feature, but it needed support. Karado and the Parks crew installed two props below it, that time using reclaimed black locust trees that have very durable wood. That's when I first met Corrado. By the way, Corrado only speaks Japanese and none of us do, so we communicate by using the translation feature on our phones. It works pretty well, although we sometimes have some amusing mix-ups. Anyway, he and Ron had also propped a cherry tree on the campus of Penn State University several years ago and developed a relationship with the managers at the U.S. National Arboretum in D.C. The week before our Dumbarton Oaks visit, they installed Hoseaway for two Ido Sakura cherry trees at the National Arboretum. Later, I paid a visit. The work is gorgeous. The technique is most associated with cherry species as well as pine, both very important to Japanese culture. In the U.S., you won't see tree supports very often, except perhaps in orchards to preserve productive old branches on fruit trees. In general, our practices resort primarily to pruning branches and cabling large trunks for support. Ron and Corrado would like to see propping used more often here, and they're promoting the technique wherever they can. 
In this case, apropos to their Japanese style of propping, this installation is for a tree native to Japan, Cercidophyllum japonicum, a katsura tree. But you knew you had a goal, which is the katsura tree. Yeah, yes, we knew we wanted to work on the katsura tree. We, we think this is one of the oldest katsura trees in the country. Um, and uh, we actually have a research fellow doing some work on that part of it right now. Um, and just, you know, having met Karato at the Arboretum a couple years ago and having a couple years to digest, you know, what they were doing at the Arboretum and more and more thinking about the trees here. There's a couple other candidates here that lend themselves particularly well, I think, to this technique that we're interested in doing in the future as well. I've yet to see the tree, so I can't okay. wait. Okay, yeah, it's a great tree. Obviously, I was dying to meet the tree we'd all been talking about. After another hour or so of work at the shop, I finally got the chance. Though it was Monday and the garden was closed, Jonathan ushered us into the museum's entrance lobby, then out a side door onto the grassy south lawn, the Grand Estate's sweeping front yard. It is largely open, framed by mature shrubs, oaks, and tulip trees, as well as a stunning grouping of cedar of Lebanon defining one edge. We walked across the entrance drive and down a short slope, and there was the Katsura along the front wall separating the property from R Street. While it isn't hidden, it isn't highlighted either, standing within its border with other trees and shrubs. But this old tree reaches out with charm and life. Quite literally. The first thing you notice are the multiple trunks, thick and sort of on top of one another, emanating from nearly the same point on a wide, weighty central trunk that sort of leans out across the expanse of lawn. Eight or nine twisting, undulating branches make the tree look as if it were about to wriggle to a new spot. One of them lays right on the ground. There are numerous cavities at the base of most branches and at the trunk. The tree is showing its age. Almost every branch was pruned at the end, making it look somewhat amputated, a result of dieback at its outer reaches, but wispy new sprouts surround each cut. There, I picked up my conversation with Jonathan and Ron. And does this tree have a name? Uh, we refer to it as the Katsura, even though there's more than one Katsura tree here. Actually, behind yeah. you is this, the other Katsura that Farrand added. Uh, when Beatrix Farrand came to design this garden, this Katsura tree was here, and she worked her design around it. Um, so it's a pretty iconic tree for us. It's fantastic. And... What's your guess on how old this tree is? So we're working on that now. We, uh, we think it was planted probably in the uh, last decade of the 1800s, but we're not 100% sure yet. Um, we're still working on that. We have a research fellow named Abner Alderondo that is uh, working on that very question. How would you describe this tree, just uh, looking at it? To me, it, it, it's like an octopus kind of like <laughs> crawling out onto the lawn. It's, it's, you know, it's situated along what we call the R Street border, which is a, a little narrow brick path that leads around the interior perimeter wall of the, of the front entrance of the garden. And this tree just kind of climbs out into the east lawn, which is a large expanse of lawn. Yep, there's no escaping it. The tree looks like an octopus. I try not to anthropomorphize trees too much, although as human beings we naturally all tend to do it. In this case, however, we get to octopomorphize it? 
Yeah, this one yeah. branch in particular that's coming follows the ground. Mm-hmm. Is it right a root or is it a branch? Right. You know, almost hard to tell the difference. Yeah. So two branches and, and, um, Rigo, uh, our, one of our crew leaders who's been here 35 years remembers when that branch was much longer and had foliage on it. And even this second branch, that's only a couple feet off the ground, uh, used to come out much further and had another upright coming off of it. So was there a point where that branch was off the ground? I don't know. I've only been here five years. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's interesting that you call it the octopus tree because Kodato Fujimoto, the Japanese master gardener that we're working with to conserve the tree, calls it Tako no Katsura no Ki, which is the octopus Katsura tree. Yeah. We're obviously about to start work, so we have chainsaws in the background and vehicles and lots of workers here. Don't worry, those saws were only there for fine-tuning the size of the poles before installation. But we'll use this moment to take a break. When we return, we'll learn more about how these supports benefit trees and theories on how the octopus katsura was planted at Dumbarton Oaks in the 19th century. I'm Doug Still, and you're listening to This Old Tree. Tako no Katsura no Ki, or in English, the octopus Katsura. That has a nice ring to it. We'll see if it sticks. But back to the day's mission. So what's the goal of our project today and tomorrow? Do you want to explain that, Ron? The, the goal is to situate the conservation of this you know, approximately 130, 140-year-old tree uh, with a series of supports that are being installed in the uh, tradition of the Japanese techniques, which both support and prop uh, branches that may be in danger of some kind of physical damage because these are incredibly low horizontal branches with a lot of... um, uh, very long fulcrum lengths, but also the the situation and the positioning of the of the posts, known as hose away, or a, a chin cane, like when you put your palm under your chin on a table, that yes. kind of support. So it's hose away with hose away. H O O Z U E. That's right. H O O Z U E. And most of these posts will be put toward the ends of the branches, and that will support uh, growth at the extremities of the branches, which will then produce uh, more branches and more leaves, which will then be able to bring energy back into the tree. So the conservation process is both structural support as well as promotion of new growth at the extremities. What, what really is interesting to me, the difference in, in approach between uh, the Japanese approach and, and, and our Western approach and, and learning about uh, Fujimoto's technique, and it's, it's just such a different perspective in how we look at the trees. And, and in Western culture, we're looking at the, 
the crown of the tree. We're doing a lot of retrenching. We're doing a lot of heading back and trying to promote growth from within. And from the Japanese perspective, they're looking at the, the branch tips as being the most active points of growth. And so trying to keep the growth there and give it the support that it needs in order to keep the growth there. It's a, just a completely different approach than we, uh, than we use in Western culture. And it seems with this particular tree, most of the branch tips have been cut back yes. in the past. Yes. Almost and all of them from the top to the bottom. Right. And so, and so that's, you know, that's likely in response to dieback. Uh, and that's how you would, would typically handle a, a tree, you know, according to ISA standards, as you would prune back your deadwood and try and make heading back cuts and produce lateral branching, which you can see this is this has been done over the years. This particular tree, Katsura, don't don't compartmentalize as well as as other trees, as hardwoods, and so every time you're making pruning cuts, you're potentially opening yourself up to a decay situation, and so right. and especially, especially cuts this large, right? Yeah, it's it's just it's completely opposite perspective, which is really interesting. <laughs> has, has there been a lot of research on or comparative research, I should say? There, there isn't a lot of research that's been done through the lens of Western arboricultural or horticultural science to look at the performance of the Japanese technique. Uh, of course, the evidence of the Japanese technique is trees that are a thousand years old that have been supported in this right. in this manner. Right. The proof um, is in the pudding. The proof right. is in the proof is in is in the pudding. Jonathan had mentioned that this is one of the oldest katsura trees in the country, and we got on to talking about who planted it, where they got it, and when. Beatrix Farron started her work here in the nineteen twenties, hired by Robert Woods Bliss and his wife Mildred. It was Mrs. Bliss that Farron collaborated with closely for decades a partnership that developed the garden into what we see today. More on that later, but by the 1920s, this katsura was already a mature tree. For us, the real the goal is to keep this tree here because it's it's one of the few, you know, really old trees left on the property. Um, and it, it tells a really interesting, helps tell a really interesting story about the, the pre-bliss, this property pre-bliss. Because we always talk about bliss and Beatrix Farrand here, and there's a lot of history um, before Bliss and Farron. And we're, we're starting to dig into that. We have some fellows that are looking into enslaved labor practices here, pre-Bliss. And so it's just neat to kind of round that out with some of the horticultural knowledge of, of some of these trees, where they came from, when they were planted, and then, you know, do our best to keep them here for another hundred years plus. According to Jonathan, it is a mystery as to exactly when the octopus Katsura was planted. Katsura, along with many other plants from Japan, can trace their introduction to North America to the mid-19th century. In the fall of 1868, the new Meiji Restoration ended shogunate rule, opening the doors for interaction with the West and the rest of the world. Through certain diplomatic figures, this led to an almost immediate botanical interest in sharing Japanese trees and plants, mostly in the form of seeds. Yeah, and if you look at it, at it within larger historical patterns, you know, Perry's ships arrived in Japan in the 1860s. So within clearly 30 years or so, this tree was already here. That nursery trade 
must have been one of the most uh, advanced or first things that began to be imported from Japan uh, were all these amazing plants that we all know now, including the Katsura. Was Washington, D.C. A, a center of the, that sort of early nursery trade? Just because it was our nation's capital, perhaps. Well, they were certainly the center, the seat of diplomatic envoys who yes. may have been either um, supporting or promoting or funding that kind of trade. Uh, or maybe, maybe a few snuck a few seeds in their <laughs> diplomatic pouches as they headed back, perhaps. Yeah. It would make sense. The Arnold Arboretum in Boston has a wonderful Katsura tree in their collection dated to 1878, and I had to go view it this past weekend when I was in Boston. It has precise documentation. Seeds were sent by an American from Massachusetts named William Clark, who was invited by the Japanese government in 1876 to assist in the establishment of Sapporo Agricultural College now Hokkaido University. Is it possible that the Dumbarton Oaks Katsura was planted earlier? If so, there was only a slim 10 years or so when seeds could have been shipped, germinated and grown in a nursery, and planted. Would some targeted research uncover the answer? I had the pleasure of being introduced to Abner Alderondo, a humanities fellow at Dumbarton Oaks and a recent grad of Amherst College. He had been digging deep in the files within the research library. What is your name and what's your role here? Yeah, my name's Abner Alderondo and I'm a humanities fellow at Dumbarton Oaks. And where are we right now? So right now we are on the third floor of the main house right by publications. And how many of you are there up here? Yeah, um, for humanities fellows at least, there's... um, there's five of us total, and then there's an an intern who's doing like an exchange program, and then there's the publication folks in the in the cubicles right there. So you're a humanities fellow. Yes. Could you describe what that is? Yeah. So humanities fellows at Dunbar and Oaks um, typically have graduated within like the past like two years um, from their from undergrad, and I graduated from Amherst College. Um, where I studied Spanish and Latinx and Latin American studies. And are you all doing the same type of project or all different types of projects? Oh, all, all of us are doing pretty different kinds of projects, yeah. And what's your project? Yeah, so I'm working on two. Um, so one are like tree biographies, essentially. So Tree biographies. Yes. I love it. Much like what you're doing, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, so basically just taking stock of like the the oldest trees on the property and then giving some like horticultural information, some of the uh, specific uh, like tree history behind them. Right. And uh, yeah, stuff like that. Did you ever think you were going to be a tree biographer? <laughs> no, I did not. No, um, I didn't is... either. <laughs> no, it's for sure. We got right into it. When did the first Katsura seeds come to the U S it was introduced in the U.S. 1864-1865, though this isn't a true introduction um, because Thomas Hogg Jr. That says Hogg, but it's supposed to say Hogg. Um, Thomas Hogg, um, he wrote this letter in this like monthly like gardener's like 
what do you call it, like a magazine? Like some sort of like thing, right? That sure, a journal. Right? Yeah, journal. It was and, a journal, exactly. And who was he? So he was um, he was part of this uh, family, the Hogg family, and they had like their own nursery. His dad established the New York Horticultural Society in 18, I believe it was 1822. The Hogg family, originally from Scotland, were well-connected and owned a florist and nursery business in Manhattan, first at 23rd Street and Broadway, and later at 79th Street at the East River. They played a prominent role in the horticultural life of New York City, and in fact, the entire Northeast. Abner learned about Hogg and other early influencers in a fascinating research article written in 2017 by Peter Del Tredici in the Botanical Review, the Journal of the New York Botanical Garden. Its title is The Introduction of Japanese Plants into North America. Abraham Lincoln appoints Thomas Hogg Jr. to the Japanese consulate in Kanagawa. Um, and he was there until like 1869, but he does return a few years later. Interesting. Why do you think he was appointed to the Japanese consulate? I honestly don't have um, much an idea as to why he was appointed. And that's an interesting year, right? In the middle of the Civil War. Yeah. Thomas Hogg must have been like, fine, I'm out of here because yeah. there's way too much going on here. Yeah, I don't want to deal with this right now. <laughs> <laughs> the appointment of Thomas Hogg Jr. as U.S. Marshal to the Japanese consulate was a big deal because despite the Civil War here in America, our government was trying to open diplomatic relations with Japan. Commodore Perry had already made inroads with the Treaty of Kanagawa in 1854, and horticulturalists and agriculturalists were always part of these missions. Del Tredici also writes of another man, Dr. George Rogers Hall, who was in East Asia and was sending seeds and plants back to the U.S. as early as 1862, specifically to a nursery in Flushing, New York, owned by Samuel Parsons. No mention of Katsura in the records, though. But back to Thomas Hogg Jr. in the public letter he wrote. So this year, um, there's a little funny story behind that um, that bit right there. 1864 and 1865. Because um, I was just telling you, he wrote to his journal. And basically, um, this other person said that they introduced Katsura Tree to North America. That person was Charles Sprague Sargent, the first director of the Arnold Arboretum. Um, that they were the one who introduced it. And he was like, no, actually, I was the one who introduced Katsura. <laughs> and this is why it's 1864 or 1865, because he doesn't even know when he sent like these seeds to his brother. I see. So there's documentation that in 1864, 1865, he, he claims, he claims hey, I brought Katsura tree seeds to the U.S. He mailed them to his brother. Okay, yeah. so they were in the form of seeds. In the form of seeds. And he was like, yeah, like if you go to like my brother's garden, you'll see that there are katsuras there. Thomas's brother, James Hogg, was also a horticulturist, and he had a private garden at 84th Street at the East River. It obviously no longer exists. Here's how Del Tredici describes Hogg's point of view, and I quote, the only articles that Hogg himself published about his Japanese plant collecting activities appeared in 1879, four years after he returned home. Hogg was motivated to write these articles to correct an erroneous statement by Professor C.S. Sargent of the Arnold Arboretum that credited William S. Clark of the Massachusetts Agricultural College for introducing Circidophyllum japonicum 
Sciadopidus verticillata, and Schizophragma hydrangeoides into North America. Hogg emphatically refuted Sargent's statement by noting that he had sent all three of these species to his brother in the 1860s, well before Clark arrived in Japan. Well, if anyone truly cares about who brought the first Katsura seeds to the U.S., looks like we have a controversy. Could James Hogg's garden be where the first Katsura was germinated and planted? Maybe. And it's unclear that any of the plants Hogg sent back were ever sold, but it's possible that some of the seeds also made it over to Parsons Nursery in Flushing. Mm-hmm. Samuel Parsons Nursery, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then um, it starts to make an appearance in 1874 at Parsons, and there's mention of Katsura tree. Though, if I recall, it's not called um, Katsura, it's called the Japanese Judas tree. Abner also found reference of Cercetophyllum japonica making an appearance at the Vienna World's Fair in 1873. So it was at the World's Fair in Vienna. Mm-hmm. In 1873. It was in Parsons Nursery by 1873. Yeah, by 74. Was that an offering for sale? Yes, offering for sale. So they received it prior. They, they definitely received it prior, yeah. Growing it for a few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we were hoping to find some evidence that showed that the owner of Dumbarton Oaks in the 1860s. Edward Linthicum purchased and planted a katsura tree before his death in 1869. Actually, the estate was known as just the Oaks at that time. With his gardener, J.H. Small, Linthicum purchased plants from Joshua Pierce, who owned Linnaean Hill Nursery in Washington, D.C. I wonder if there are any letters from Hogg to Joshua Mm -hmm. Pierce, just to show that they worked with each other. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if they knew each other. I bet it was a small world. Oh, for sure. I had a follow-up conversation with Abner after he did some further sleuthing, and unfortunately, we weren't able to find any documentation for Linthicum acquisitions or Linnaean Hill sales. Abner searched high and low. But overall, he did find that the Katsura tree was beginning to circulate around the East Coast in the 1860s and early 70s in multiple ways, and horticultural networks were tied together. But our guesses, it seems, will need to remain conjecture. So, this is a fond mystery. So, it could have been planted within, say, a 30-year span. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> I think for most people that would be good enough, but you know we're tree biographers, and yeah. we gotta know. <laughs> yeah, we gotta know exactly when this tree was planted. <laughs> That's right. After I met with Abner, I was treated to a tour of the famous Dumbarton Oaks Garden. Whoa! Even in March, it is stunning. It is, after all, the gravitational force that makes this a world-class site and brings tens of thousands of visitors each year. Without understanding it, we don't completely understand the symbiotic importance of the octopus Katsura. After the break, I chat more with Ron Henderson to get a sense of Beatrix Farron's vision. Uh, Beatrix Farron was a woman who grew up on the East Coast in a fairly literary and 
you know, one could say slightly wealthy family and situation. She was upper crust, right? Yes. You know, her, she's the niece of Edith Wharton, um, the Pulitzer Prize winning author who wrote about the Gilded Age. So she certainly was exposed to, to that group of people. And then, you know, she was also involved with several universities um, and her husband, uh, Max, was a professor and the uh, first director of the Huntington Library. So, you know, she grew up in quite literary and educated um, friends and family. How would you describe her aesthetic? What and what were her influences? You know, I think she she came into landscape architecture, or what she maybe preferred to call landscape gardening, uh, through plants. I would say her uh, early mentor was Robert Sprague Sargent from the Arnold Arboretum in Boston, and affiliated, of course, with Harvard. And her work was largely launched through estate work because in part, um, women were not leading landscape architecture offices at that time in America's history or anywhere in the world. And as her skills and reputation began to grow, you know, really through a remarkable circle of, of clients and friends and family, uh, she was able to extend her work beyond estates to college campuses and um, and other institutions from the National Cathedral to the White House. Her, her work kind of grows out of, I think, a really kind of remarkable understanding of plants and the orchestration of space across topographical changes. At, at Dumbarton Oaks, it's, it's particularly strong. The house at Dumbarton Oaks sits up on a ridge. And so her work is largely to the north and to the east of the main house. So kind of away from um, the South Lawn and away from the Katsura. And her work negotiated um, a fairly steeply sloping site with a series of terrace gardens that step down the hill. As the slope gets a little more uh, steep, the walls become further apart. And one could say even the, the garden transitions from something that's highly cultivated, such as a rose garden, to the wildness of Cherry Hill at the back and then all the way down into Rock Creek, which was more of a, one would say, a more naturalized garden that was originally part of the, part of her work as well. Yeah, it just sort of blends into and becomes woodland almost around the edges. It, it, it is, and, and it does. You know, so it's, you know, it's a kind of classic garden uh, strategy of building a series of garden rooms. Hers are are incredibly deftly organized around the, the topography. So the North Lawn, the space is kind of telescope in narrowness until you get at the very end of the North Vista uh, overlooking that, that wilder valley. Um, so I think there's a lot of um, spatial innovation and allegorical 
and commemorative aspects of the garden in tablets and uh, sculpture and fountains, but largely in a, uh, a way that we might expect gardens to transition from being more formal nearer to the house to wilder, uh, further away from the house. Um, as well as, as I said, this really, really accomplished sense of, t- of terracing. I love the sense of scale walking through those rooms and how your eye is taken in different directions, depending on where you're standing and where you're, you're moving. But she definitely shapes your experience that way and, and what you see and what, you know, the, the views. She, she does. And there's, you know, I think there's some unexpected vistas that come from um, that kind of stacking or layering of these spaces. What I felt walking through the garden for the first time, and that was the first time I'd ever been there, was that there was a, a, a cohesive sense of whole. And it didn't seem like there were specimens that were highlighted, maybe a few, maybe, the, you know, the um, the uh, European beach or some of the others. But for the most part, it was a, a, a broader vision than a collection of plants, per se. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, although she she was a consummate designer of landscapes with plants, there are very few instances where where a specimen is the focus of, of a garden room. Like you said, the European beach is is one of those. You know, otherwise she was quite effective in working with with mass with plant mass uh, often of the same genus maybe sometimes even the same species so things like cherry hill which was in its splendor just as we were uh, finishing the work on the katsura tree you know was a plant based room in the garden but it was of multiple specimens, not a single specimen. And then, you know, things like the the mass planting in the Forsythia Dell um, or other locations in the garden where she's using plant mass or um, a kind of plant typology. So there's the rose garden and there is the perennial garden and there is the uh, potagere, right? So there are, there are a series of rooms that are plant-based, but rarely are those, you know, based on a single specimen. But when just getting started in 1922, Beatrix Ferrand found an unusual single specimen on the South Lawn, and in likely coordination with Mrs. Bliss, she let the mature Katsura remain just as it was. Almost. She did plant the Katsura across the lawn so that it wouldn't be alone. And it had a matching pair across the lawn. That is that is true. And, you know, it's kind of interesting how potent that that is now to be able to have that dialogue of, of two trees of the same species kind of talking to each other across a space. And their branches really do sort of extend towards each other, don't they? They do. They do. You know, I... I think Mildred Bliss also deserves a lot of uh, recognition in this entire enterprise. You know, and she wrote, and I quote, that gardens have their place in the humanist order of life and that trees, 
are noble elements to be protected by successive generations and are not to be neglected or lightly destroyed. I think it's wonderful that the people at now at Dumbarton Oaks were willing to bring this Japanese uh, technique to the tree. Um, it's not an aesthetic you see in the garden now or very many places in the United States at all. And But it just seems right for the, this old katsura tree. It does seem right. The specific technique and proportioning of the supports and the manner in which the cross pieces that support the branches are scaled, um, the way that the branches are wrapped to protect themselves, to protect them from the from the branches and the way, of course, that the rope is lashed in order to secure the branch and the support together, that expert technique is not is not common, not common at all. So it's been a real joyful enterprise uh, to spend some time working to conserve the Dabarden Oaks Katsura tree. On the second day of the project, Corrado Fujimoto gave a short presentation to the fellows, staff, and other invited guests in front of the Tako no Katsura no Ki, with translation help from Hans. Um, I wanted to thank everybody for being here. Thank Lombard Oaks for letting us be here. Uh, thank the staff that we've been working with. It's been so much fun. Hey guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hi, my, my, my name is Hong Hi, hi, hi. What's your name? I'm Fujimoto Kurato. I'm from Japan. I'm from Japan. Uh, my name is Parato Fujimoto. I'm a master gardener in Japan. I'm not Parato Fujimoto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name is Hans Friedel. I'm from Chicago. I'm a master's student at Illinois Institute of Technology. I also was just lucky enough to receive the Hope Goddard Eisenberg Fellowship in Public Horticulture to help support this work uh, and some of the ongoing research that Ron was talking about. Um, but I'm going to go back to being Parato now. <laughs> so, uh, 10 years ago, I was able to, I was invited to help preserve and support a large maple tree at Penn State University. And what I learned there is that there are many trees in America that need support. <laughs> While there, I cornered Thomas Cummins, the director of Dumbarton Oaks, which altogether is a Harvard University research institute, library, and museum, as well as a garden. He was kind enough to let me ask him what he thought about this tree. How important is this tree to Dumbarton Oaks, the Katsura tree? Well, again, I'm not the expert on this, but this is one of our oldest trees, if not one of the, a tree that proceeds by far. Uh, Dumbarton Oaks as a Harvard entity, and even before the Blisses bought 
uh, and created Dumbarnook. So, you know, it is one of those landmark pieces that belongs to Dumbarnooks. That's how important it is. <laughs> when do you think it was planted? We're doing the dating now, uh, and, and it's not clear. Uh, uh, Thaisa Wei, who is working with uh, one of our interns to get... Well, so I've been speaking to Abner about Abner, it, too. Yeah. I just so, wondered so, if you had an opinion, no, too. No, I, I don't. I, I go with what they say. They right. tell me. I just work here. Yeah. <laughs> I love these trees, though. I mean, they're just spectacular. Yeah, it's one of my favorite trees, that beautiful heart-shaped leaf. <sighs> and it's just, uh, I don't know, the way that I've always watched it, because uh, I walk with my dog here yes. around, and we always talk, walk around, and I always just marvel at the tensile strength of something like this that just holds itself. Right. It seems to be propping itself up with these branches right on the ground. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you call it the octopus tree? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to start a trend. <laughs> but, but I will if you want. <laughs> All right, that sounds promising. The octopus Katsura is clearly in excellent hands at Dumbarton Oaks. Everyone I met from top to bottom is super talented and also extremely friendly and welcoming, I have to say. Thanks for your hospitality. And you should see the tree now, decked out in its hoseaway. It is somehow even more stunning than before, if that's possible, and we're going to see it thrive. I'll be posting pictures. I'd like to give my thanks to Ron Henderson, Corrado Fujimoto, Hans Friedel, Jonathan Cavalier, and Abner Alderondo for appearing on the show and for teaching me about the Katsura. And listeners, thank you for tagging along with me on this garden journey. I really appreciate each and every one of you. I hope you'll join me again in a couple weeks. I'll give you a teaser. The Katsura at Dumbarton Oaks wasn't the only story I got out of my trip to Washington, D.C., so stay tuned. I'm Doug Still, and you've been listening to This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree Shadow and shade Kids down the block are selling lemonade Send them down a cool breeze, a sweet cascade Tailor made by this old tree Coming back over. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Mark, no. Corato, okay. Yeah. Master. <laughs> oh. <laughs> New guy. In the end. I think it's good when it's old. In the end. In the end. Once they're both in, you Are can these hit. Solid brass. They're so we found them yesterday. They're iron. Wait, you found them here? We found them online. Oh, oh okay. In the uh, Philippines. Uh, in the uh, Philippines. Uh, it did get moved with. It was They're iron. Outside. They're iron. Iron. Iron galvanized. Galvanized iron. Um, zinc plated. These might be. Yeah, they don't look galvanized. The rope was tighter when crushed. Okay. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Better, better. Yeah.
better. Where version 2.0. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> this is mistakes of the past. This is why there are really no instructions. It's just it's. Uh, that's why you need garage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is job security. Job security. Yeah.